listener production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Friday, June 11. I'm Tom Tilly, joined by Jan Fran. Jan, the biggest sting in policing history for our briefing today. Yeah, we're going to take you inside Operation Ironside, the AFP and FBI sting that's led to more than 200 drug arrests around the world so far. Yeah, and the most intriguing part of this bust is the way the police controlled a so-called encrypted messaging app which they trick thousands of drug traffickers into using. It takes one to know one. I think using a crook who, who understood the way it all works and how they, they operate was pretty smart by the FBI. And then the Australian technology just smashed the whole thing wide open. Yeah, very interesting story. We'll find out how they did that, how they got all these criminals to use this messaging app uh, in just a moment. First, here are the big stories of the day. We are starting in Brisbane because the city is one step closer to hosting the 2032 Olympic Games. Yeah, super exciting. So the executive board of the International Olympic Committee have announced that Queensland is its choice to host the Games. Yeah, IOC President Thomas Bach said in a statement overnight that this commission looked in-depth at all aspects of Brisbane 2032 as well as the strong support across the entire political spectrum in Australia. Left, right and centre. So basically what happens now is this decision from the Executive Board goes to the IOC member countries to vote and that will happen on July 21. Yeah, there are no other cities in the mix though, so it is a bit of a formality and if Brisbane does get elected as expected, it'll be the third Australian city after Melbourne in 1956 and also Sydney in 2000 Mm -hmm. who could forget to host the Summer Games. This all um, adds weight to my theory that Australia is at the start of a golden era. Coming out of COVID, we've been a shining light for the world, uh, the way we've handled it, our economy's been amazing and now we're going to have this massive uh, sporting and cultural moment. Good okay. times for Australia. That's that's my guess. I mean, I, hey, I'm on board that theory. I don't know how deeply you've looked into it, but I'm on board. I'm living it. And the Australian government is working towards our next travel bubble, this time with Singapore. Yeah, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison has met with uh, Prime Minister Lee Sien Long in Singapore overnight as part of the 6th Australia-Singapore Annual Leaders Meeting and they discussed opening a travel bubble. There is nothing impeding us, as we've discussed today, from getting on with the job of putting systems in place that will enable such a bubble to emerge between Singapore and Australia as it does now occur between Australia and New Zealand. The PM there. Now, Singapore has had over 62,000 cases of COVID-19 with 38 deaths. Um, It's been in a partial lockdown for the last month and it'll begin raising restrictions next week. Although the both leaders did concede that there could be some time before the bubble actually opened and that university students would be the first to benefit from it. Yeah, so those case numbers you mentioned are throughout the whole pandemic. So mm. it's done really well. It's been one of the other countries that's done well, despite a bit of a recent um, cluster. But it'd be interesting to see if they can open this bubble. It's an important city in Asia. Yeah, and I also imagine they'd want to kickstart our higher education um, sector, which has shed 17,000 jobs during the pandemic and is expected to lose almost $2 billion in 2021. Yeah, and there's a plan underway from the New South Wales government to start bringing in extra international students as well, which is waiting sign-off from the federal government who control the borders. So yeah, there's a lot of movement in that space of trying to get our um, lucrative international sector started again. Well, Australians are being urged to keep lining up for the AstraZeneca vaccine despite a second blood clot death being attributed to the jab. A 52-year-old woman from New South Wales who'd recently received the vaccine died from a severe form of blood clot to the brain. 
Uh, the Therapeutic Goods Administration issued a statement yesterday saying the woman's death was linked to the AstraZeneca vaccine. It's only the second death with now over 3.6 million doses of this vaccine being given across Australia. I will point out that this remains an extremely rare event uh, to get these serious clots. That's Chief Medical Officer Paul Kelly uh, talking yesterday. The TGA said that there'd been a total of 48 cases of blood clotting connected to the AstraZeneca vaccine. Just to break down those numbers, 31 of those people have already been discharged from hospital, 15 remain there, and uh, two people have died with this latest case. And Melbourne's emerged from the lockdown overnight. Uh, They did record four cases yesterday. They're all from the same household and reservoir in Melbourne's north, and authorities are trying to trace the source of the infections. Um, They're not close contacts of existing cases. Yeah, now masks will remain mandatory after restrictions were lifted. This was at one minute to midnight last night. We do have active cases in the community and we want to stop every last transmission. And then, you know, that judgment about how far you are from someone else, you know, that's a fairly inexact science to um, work out exactly. That's Victoria's Deputy Chief Health Officer Alan Chang there. Interesting they don't know where these cases came from. I'll be watching this one pretty closely with this family. In terms of the restrictions, um, no longer any limits on reasons to leave the home for Melbournians. The 10K limit's up to 25. Funerals are still capped at 50 people. Weddings at 10. Dining will happen at restaurants, but gyms will not be Yeah, happening. that's right. And I think regional Victoria's probably looking to suffer a little bit with that 25-kilometre restriction Mm. for Melburnians, particularly because it is a long weekend and a lot of people like to travel regionally at that time. They won't be able to do that. And authorities in three states are waiting to speak to the Melbourne couple who travelled to Queensland and then tested positive for COVID. Yeah, so the husband um, of the woman has now been confirmed as positive. This was after his wife tested positive early in the week. Um, They are both in a Sunshine Coast hospital at the moment. They travelled to Queensland via New South Wales at the start of the month while Melbourne was in lockdown. Authorities are still trying to determine how and why they left Melbourne's strict lockdown. Victoria was not able to speak to the couple for a case interview, uh, but we will do so. I think it's important to note uh, if they were relocating, uh, that is not a breach of directions here in Victoria, but we just don't know, so we'll have those discussions. They're being very careful not to slam this couple, aren't they? That's acting Victorian Premier James Molino, but a lot of people are wondering uh, that very simple question. Why did you leave during a lockdown? Yeah, look, I, I do recall um, an incident, I believe this was um, uh, last year, when two women left um, Queensland and they went down to Melbourne when Melbourne was in lockdown and came back up to Queensland and they were splashed all over the front page of the Courier-Mail and declared enemies of the state and they had their faces shown. They were really publicly shamed. They're being very, um, staying very mum with this couple. We don't know who they are. And look, rightly so, it's just funny how... There's inconsistencies with people. All right, the story behind this incredible police drug bust and this very interesting story of how they got the criminals to use the app in just a moment. This is the story of a messaging app that 11,000 suspected drug criminals were using, not realising it was a police app that was being monitored in real time. Essentially, we have been in the back pockets of organised crime and operationalised a criminal takedown like we have never seen. That was AFP Commissioner Rhys Kershaw talking about Operation Ironside. It is a massive three-year global sting involving 4,500 Australian police. 
Yeah, and it all came to a head in Australia on Sunday when police started a huge series of raids. They've arrested 224 offenders. So far, there's $45 million in cash that's been seized. Uh, They say they stopped 21 death plots from happening, so planned hits, including uh, one planned hit with a machine gun and the Adelaide Cafe strip. Yeah, so on today's briefing, how did the cops pull off this massive operation? And how did they trick thousands of drug traffickers into using their Anom app? Mark Morrie is the crime editor at the Daily Telegraph and that paper broke the story on Tuesday. Mark, it's been called Australia's biggest ever sting. How do you judge that? I've been around 40 years and I've never seen anything like this in my time as a crime reporter in Australia. And even comparable overseas, it's um, one of the biggest operations and it's going to go on and on for the next year, I think, from the information they've gathered. What makes it one of the biggest operations? It's the targets that they've been able to infiltrate. Some of these guys are Australians living overseas who have been organising drug deals for the last 10, 15 years, major, major shipments, and they've picked up a lot of the people here who have been helping them. In the coming months, I think you will see very senior um, officials, people working on the waterfront who are going to be arrested, who are going to be caught up in the whole thing. They were using them to get the drugs into Australia. So what makes it so significant is uh, the players. These are some of the most wanted men by Australian authorities uh, for the last decade or two. So the most interesting part of it is the use of this Anom app. So where did this idea come from? It came from a crook. (laughs) Um, A drug dealer was arrested in America and he was a supplier of encrypted devices to the underworld. And when he got arrested... He did a deal with them. He said, I've got this new app that I'm putting out there. And they paid him some money. He developed this app and it started to get circulated amongst the crooks around the world. But the Australian Federal Police, they were talking to the Federal Police about this. They have these arrangements where they they share information. The FBI, sorry, the AFP and the FBI, you mean? Yes, yeah. They frequently, you know, um, collaborate on things and share intelligence. And two of them got to thinking, and one of the Australian Federal Police guys was able to decrypt these encryptions that were used on this app. And from that, they were able to gather every little piece of conversation going on. Now, the interesting thing is, with this, they were so confident that it was not being able to be accessed by authorities. The crooks didn't use pseudonyms. They didn't use codes. They frequently use codes when they're doing drug deals, which helps, makes it hard for police to decipher. It's also very bewildering sometimes for juries to understand when guys are saying, I've got 18 tyres or whatever. But with this, they just were saying, hey, let's go and deal some drugs. Let's go and have 200 kilos of cocaine. They were that confident that they were able to do this with impunity. So just so I understand, was it the AFP in conjunction with the FBI that actually built the app from scratch or did they get the idea from, as you say, a drug dealer or a crook that was already doing this kind of stuff? It was the crook that actually was the first point of this whole operation. It was a a drug dealer in San Diego that the FBI picked up. You know, it takes one to know one. I think using a crook who, who understood the way it all works and how they they operate was pretty smart by the FBI. And then the Australian technology just smashed the whole thing wide open. So you've reported that 11,000 people ended up using this app. 
were they already using it when they got that criminal in San Diego involved or was it a much smaller scale and then they were able to convince many more people to start using it? It, it started off quite small and then it got a surge about a year or so ago when, again, Australian and uh, American authorities cracked a, another device called Phantom that was being used by everybody. So everyone started going to this anom. So it started off quite small. But the interesting thing is uh, a major Australian criminal is a major player in the Comanchero and, and, in fact, an international drug dealer. But he's so respected. He was the one that was pushing this out to a lot of his colleagues and, and criminal associates. And that's where they've got so much information for Australia, an amazing amount that has really cut into the Comanchero and Lone Wolf bikey operations across Australia. Did he just think it was a great app or was he sort of brought in by the police? Why was he spruiking it? He thought it was a great app. <laughs> so and he's on the run from police. Obviously, um, he's not too popular with law enforcement, but are the rest of these suspected criminals also pretty pissed at him? Oh, undoubtedly, he would be not a very popular man amongst some of those people that you know, looked up to him, um, trusted him, respected him. He's looking rather silly. You know, he's <laughs> hiding in Turkey for about 10 years. Uh, when he fled here, he found out that he was about to be arrested on a major heroin importation. He's a Sydney guy, uh, Turkish descent. He was a very, very major player in the common cheeros. He was their money man. And then he became like a, an international drug lord. He's like, his wealth is just enormous, the amount of money. And so he was this god amongst all these crooks. And he's going, use this, use this. All right, so let's talk about some of these arrests. How long were police collecting evidence before they decided to actually start arresting people? Three years. They've got like 20 million texts that they're going through. And the interesting thing is both Australian and FBI said the communications on this app were used almost just exclusively for criminal activity. They didn't use them to ring up their mates. You didn't, in fact, you couldn't use it as an actual telephone. It was really a text and photo sending device. Can you tell us a little bit more about how the raids were carried out? Like, did they all happen at the one time so as to not tip anyone off or were they all done in a short space of time or what? They began in Wollongong, would you believe, on Sunday. They'd been planned for months and then on Monday morning they they hit everywhere, like synchronised across the country and then overseas in all over Europe. So they were pretty coordinated. They didn't do it every single country at exactly the same time. There was no publicity. It was very, very, very secretive. And even those raids when people rang up, um, local journalists in Wollongong, they said, oh, no, it's just an ongoing operation. And then it exploded over the next 24 hours. Is this all legally watertight? Do police need warrants to surveil people in this way? You always have to get warrants to do any sort of phone taps or any sort of interceptions of conversations or communications. Now, these guys, it would be pretty easy to get them on, on especially the guy in Turkey because he's wanted here and nearly all of his associates have criminal records. So I don't think it would have been too hard to convince a, a, a judge or a magistrate to give them a warrant to keep listening in on these people. So why have the police told us all about this app? Why have they blown their cover? Did the criminals already work out that it was a police app? I think they may have been getting suspicious. As I said, in recent times, there have been some massive uh, interceptions of 
of drug shipments coming to Australia and around the world. And maybe they started thinking something's afoot and maybe slowed down in their use and the police decided now was the time to go. Is it making a substantial dent on the drug trade or is this just a continual game of whack-a-mole where more people step up and fill the void and find new ways of doing this kind of stuff? I spoke to a, a very senior New South Wales police officer and I said, will this put the price of cocaine up? Will it make a drug shortage? He said there might be a little blip, but they still use all these other apps. So it's, this app was being used by a lot of people, but not, not by all of the people. There will be other people looking to step into the void. I'd imagine now with the common Chiro and Lone Wolf being very, very much weakened and hurt by this, that the rebels and banditos and finks and other groups will be thinking, wow, now's our chance to try and take over some of their territory and some of their drug operations. Right, so it could spark potentially a turf war or a drug war. Well, yeah, the... The Deputy Police Commissioner of New South Wales Police, Dave Hudson, flagged that. He said, we've been getting ready for months for this operation to get ready in case there are reprisals. They've put on extra police in the bikey squad, wrapped up, which is go out and they exclusively deal with these organised crime guys and especially bikies, and they're already getting set in case there are reprisals or, more importantly, as you said, a turf war while these guys will start thinking, now's our chance, let's go and take take over the Como territory here. So there could be bloodshed. How big was the AFP's role in this? Were they the key players in this? I think they were very instrumental in the technology which allowed this to happen, So, which is vital. Without the decryption, as, as you say, um, this wouldn't have happened. So that Australian technology provided by the AFP, that was the linchpin. But there's no doubt they were instrumental in this and and deserve a lot of credit. That was Mark Murray. He's a crime editor at The Daily Telegraph. An amazing story. It involved the ingenuity of a criminal mind, but also like the best of a Silicon Valley mind. Mm. And then all this hard work and coordination from so many police officers around the world. As Mark was saying, there might be a lot of wharfies, baggage handlers and postal workers who get arrested from this as well. And we're used to seeing these sort of bikey type characters go down for this. But if it reaches into those areas, that will be fascinating to watch. Yeah. And the idea that this, well, won't be the end of the drug war, that drug dealers tend to be quite savvy. They spring up, you know, time and time again. They use different technology. There's, you know, head honchos get taken down and they get replaced. It did make me wonder about the futility of the war on drugs, that all this work, all this intelligence, all the risk that these police officers took Mm. in doing this. And, you know, they stop some violence, but they're also expecting more violence as a result of it if a turf war sort of opens up. And then the drug trade just keeps on going. The war on drugs, has it worked? That's the next briefing topic. All right, that is it for the briefing this week, Monday to Friday. The weekend briefing will be in your feed tomorrow. Jamila Rizvi, who have you got on? Yeah, thanks, Tom. I am chatting this weekend with Samantha Harris, who, if you don't know her name, you definitely know her face. She's one of the most well-known models in Australia. Harris is a Dungity woman who has some really fascinating reflections on culture and country and also racism in the fashion world. All right, looking forward to that. Thank you, Jamila. I hope you have an amazing weekend. Thank you for listening to The Briefing and we'll catch you next week.
listener.